Our lesson of the day is from James chapter 1. I will begin reading in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks and praise for all your gifts coming down from above. We especially thank you for the gift of your Son and the gift of your Spirit. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given to us, a word that is now implanted in our hearts, and we ask that it might grow and bear fruit even this day, that we might receive your word in meekness and in humility, that the filthiness and wickedness of our lives might be driven out that bad habits might be replaced with good ones, that vice might be replaced with virtue, that we might live lives of faithfulness and integrity before you, that we might be not merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. This we pray, giving you thanks and praise in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So I have been preaching my way through James, and uh, you know it's just it's interesting to me. Sometimes James gets treated as uh, sort of the leftovers of the New Testament. Uh, there have even been some in church history who have argued that James doesn't even belong in the New Testament, which I think is uh, crazy. But uh, certainly that's uh, occasionally happened. It is easy to dismiss or overlook the letter of James. What does this book contribute that we can't find? Elsewhere, Perhaps that we can't find said better elsewhere. Uh, Some would say James doesn't really seem to have much of a theology. It just seems like the book is a sort of rambling jumble of uh, ethical instructions and wisdom sayings. It doesn't really have any structure or any clear purpose that you can discern. It's not really organized in any clear way. Uh, Even though we're just a few verses in, I hope you can already see how false all of that is. And if you haven't thus far, I'm certainly hopeful that you will today. James was actually a very deep theologian, and his letter reflects a very deep theology. And while, yes, his letter is full of practical instruction, because that's what the audience he's writing to needed most, all of that practical instruction is rooted in a very deep and rich theology of grace that really drives the whole letter. And James certainly has a structure. It's a letter with a purpose. It's a letter that is uh, actually organized in a very intricate kind of way. It's a a very complex structure uh, in a lot of ways. Some of those structures, at least in a small way, we'll notice today. 
And we'll also notice, as we had before, that yes, James echoes teaching from Matthew's Gospel, which was most likely already in circulation by the time James writes. But James also actually anticipates some of the themes in John's Gospel, which would not be written uh, for several more years, and is probably considered the most sophisticated of the Gospels, maybe the most sophisticated of all the books of the New Testament. And yet here James is anticipating what John will say some years later in his Gospel. James is a letter written to early Jewish Christians who have scattered out from Jerusalem in response to persecution, uh, specifically in response to the stoning of Stephen, recorded in Acts chapter 8. And James is writing to help these early Jewish Christians navigate the challenges they are facing, living as a persecuted minority, where the empire hates them, their fellow Jewish countrymen are growing to hate them, And James calls on these early Jewish Christians to live lives of perseverance and steadfastness, uh, to grow and to mature in their faith. These are Christians who are tempted to either compromise with their critics or lash out at their enemies in anger. And in the midst of this situation, James gives them godly counsel. He reminds them of certain core foundational truths and how these truths should shape the way they live to the very end. And of course, all of this, I think, is very instructive for us since our situation uh, actually has a number of parallels with those James was writing to. We, too, are tempted to compromise. How many Christians do we see around us each day who are willing to, quote-unquote, rethink things? And then what do you know? They come out looking just like the culture all around us on whatever the issue is. They feel that pressure, the squeeze, and they give into it. They compromise their faith. Or, on the other hand, how many around us are given over to rage. They're given over to anger, thinking that their anger can somehow accomplish God's purpose and bring in God's righteousness. James shows us a better way than either of these alternatives. Now, in the section I read for us this morning, verse 13, James says that temptation does not come from God. God is not temptable, and God does not tempt. Temptation does not come from God. So what does come from God? Well, in verse 17, James answers that question. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Now, when James speaks of every good gift and every perfect gift, uh, there are some who think, think that this refers to all the good things that God pours into our lives. We might recount all the blessings God's given to us. We like to do this, right, from time to time. Count our blessings. And we might think of family and friends and health and house and clothes and so on. All the ways God's blessed us. And certainly we should thank God for those gifts God freely gives us. We don't deserve any of those things, but God sends these good things into our lives. It is true. Everything is a gift. We might even say the whole cosmos, the whole universe is a gift of the Father, a gift of love. One of the church fathers described the whole universe as a love letter from God. It, it's, it's, it all, it's all marked with God's love. It reveals God's love and God's goodness and God's generosity to us. All of that's true. And I don't doubt that that's lurking there in the background of what James says, but I don't think that's the main thing he has in view. After all, those kinds of gifts are given by God even to unbelievers. 
But I think the good gift, the perfect gift, the, the gifts in view here uh, in, in James 1.17 are gifts specifically given to the church, given to the people of God. Now, why do I say that? How do we know that? Well, for one thing, James speaks of these fatherly gifts in between talking about sin, which leads to death, and the new birth, which leads to life. So in the context, you've got sin birthing death and God birthing life. And right in the middle of that, James talks about these good and perfect gifts of the Father. Further, that language of gift, while certainly it could refer to the multitude of gifts that God bestows upon us in our lives, uh, it's actually used again and again and again in the New Testament to describe salvation or some aspect of salvation, the gift of salvation. In particular, we could say the Son and the Holy Spirit. These are God's preeminent gifts to us, the gift of the Son and the gift of the Spirit. In fact, that word gift often refers to a sacrifice. Think about when Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar and go be made right with your brother. Gift often is is another word for sacrifice. Gift could even refer to the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus as God's gift to us. Think of some of the the places that uh, speak this way. John 3.16, we read this morning. We might paraphrase it this way to bring it in contact with what James says. God the Father so loved the world that he gave the good and perfect gift of his Son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or think of the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, verses 15 and 16, who speaks of the free gift of grace that comes through the man Jesus Christ. That's being contrasted with the death that came through the man Adam. Further, we can say the fact that these gifts come down from heaven reinforces that James is talking primarily about the Son and the Spirit here. Again, if you read all of John chapter 3, it's very interesting. John describes Jesus as He who came from heaven, as He who descended from heaven. In fact, that language of coming down in John's Gospel, and perhaps also here in James, is really coded language for the Incarnation. The eternal Son of God taking on human flesh as He comes from heaven to earth. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes Jesus as the man from heaven. He's the heavenly man, the man who has come down from heaven. And of course, we know this with the Holy Spirit as well. In Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out from above. The Holy Spirit comes down from above, from heaven to earth, descending from the Father through the Son from heaven to earth to the disciples. So the Son comes down from above. The Spirit comes down from above. These are the good and perfect gifts James is pointing us to. So we could put it this way. The good and perfect gifts James is describing. The good and perfect gift here is the incarnate Son and His sacrifice on the cross through which the Holy Spirit is poured out on us, causing us to be born again from above. That's really what James is saying here. Jesus, the crucified one, is God's good and perfect gift. The Holy Spirit, the source of this new birth, is God's good and perfect gift. Our evil desires can give birth only to sin. God's goodness gives birth to salvation. Temptation comes from below. Salvation comes from above. Temptation comes from within our own evil hearts. Salvation comes from the outside, from the goodness of the Father's heart. 
So it really all makes sense if you put all this together. There's a clear pattern here in James, a pattern that emerges from this text. You could really say this is the gospel according to James. He's showing us God's sovereign grace, rescuing us from death, bringing us into life, God coming down to us, lifting us up to himself, God giving himself to us that we might be rescued from sin and death and hell. James is an epistle of grace. Contrary to what some have said, that it's just that, you know, that it's legalistic or moralistic, that it's just randomly uh, sorted wisdom sayings. No. James is giving us the gospel here. And it will serve as the foundation of everything that is to come. Keep going, and I think you'll see this even more. James says these gifts here have to do with perfection which we have already seen as one of James' favorite terms for our maturation and growth in the faith. It's the same word used there for the perfect gifts. same word was used back in verse 4 to describe the end result of this process of salvation, this process of maturation, perfection. That's the goal of our salvation. James has already said God puts us through trials that we might grow to perfection. Now we find God's given us these gifts that will get us there. So the gifts in view are gifts that bring us to full maturity, to completion where we lack nothing. These gifts bring us to wisdom and to maturity. They lead us in this process of growth. These gifts make us perfect. And so when James speaks of every good and perfect gift coming down from above, he's, again, I think talking about the Trinity's gift of salvation. The Father sending the Son and through the Son sending the Spirit. The Son and the Spirit coming down from above to make us perfect. The many gifts of God are really the one gift of salvation through the Son and the Spirit. So yes, it's true. The Father fills our lives with all kinds of good gifts. God the Father delights to give us good gifts. As a true Father, a good Father... He delights in giving good gifts and being generous to us as His children. He showers all of humanity with all kinds of generous gifts. But the ultimate gift, the good gift, the perfect gift, the best gift, is the gift of His Son and His Spirit, the gift of His salvation. This is the gift of gifts, this gift of salvation, God's gift of Himself as He rescues us from sin death and hell as he rescues us from our own evil desires as he rescues us from our guilt and our shame and brings us into this glorious new life james is showing us the depth and the richness of god's goodness god's generosity he's not just describing god's goodness in general I mean, certainly God is good, and He's good in all kinds of ways. But James is describing this specific goodness, this specific gift that restores us and delivers us. Now, it's interesting. You know, we talk, here James talks about this good gift, this perfect gift. Of course, that one gift, you can think of it as one gift, or you can think of it as many gifts that comprise the one gift. The New Testament uses all kinds of different words to describe aspects of this gift, where it's like regeneration and justification and sanctification and adoption and glorification. The New Testament has this 
vast array of words, this huge vocabulary that it uses to describe the different aspects of our salvation. But all of these may be seen as one gift, one good and perfect gift by which God unites us to himself and brings us home to himself forever. This is the gift that has come down from heaven and that lifts us up to heaven. So again, don't don't dismiss James as if he only had a very thin theology and was mostly focused on ethics. No, verse 17 may be taken as a one-verse summary of the gospel. It's the whole plan of salvation in a nutshell. And it anticipates in very key ways the way John's gospel will go on to describe the gift of salvation, the gift of the Son. But we can really say even more. Uh, We can continue on unpacking this. This gift originates in God's goodness and it brings us to perfection. But note what else James says here. These good and perfect gifts come down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. Now why does James include this description of God in his little summary here? It seems like he's even going into a little bit of theology proper, talking about God himself, what God is like. Why does he do that? He says, in the Father there is no change or variation. And again, I would say the same thing here. James is not just making an abstract point that God does not change in his essential character. That is true. God is immutable, as we say. That would be the big term here. God is immutable. His perfections are infinite, and so they cannot increase or diminish in any way. But God's changelessness here, God's constancy here, is really a way of focusing attention on God's faithfulness. It's James' way of saying to these beleaguered Christians who are suffering all kinds of ways, who thought, well, maybe now that Messiah has come, things are going to turn for the be- take a turn for the better, when really they seem to have taken a turn for the worse. James is saying, no, God is constant, God is faithful, God can be counted on to keep His promises, God is a God who's going to keep covenant with us. God is not fickle. He's not going to change his mind, much less his character. God keeps his word. Your circumstances might change. Your God does not. That's what James is saying to them. God is like an unchanging, unfading light. A light that never flickers or fades in any way. A light that never dims in any kind of way. Created lights do vary. Every light we know within the creation changes. That's true of man-made lights. These bulbs will eventually burn out. It's true of of created lights that we see in the world around us. It's not true of God. God is light and in Him is no darkness, no shadow, no fading. Think about how Scripture describes Jesus as the light of the world. Jesus brings God's light into the world. He comes down from heaven bringing the light of the Father into the world. God created lights as symbolic pointers to his own original uncreated lights. Those derivative lights, the lights we see in the creation around us, were made to image that original eternal light that is in God himself. So when we look at lights around us, they tell us something about God. They remind us God is light. In him there is no darkness. But they're not identical to God. They're not identical to God's light. Because all those created lights, all those lights we see around us change, whereas God does not. The language that James uses here indicates he may very well be thinking of the sun, moon, and stars. 
God created these lights to image his light. But think about the variance of those lights. The sun sets every day. The sun can be covered up by clouds. The sun can even be completely eclipsed. The sun is glorious. It's a bright light, the brightest light we know, but it's a shifting light, a varying light. Of course, that's all the more true of the moon as it waxes and wanes. James is saying God's not like that. He doesn't shift or vary or go dark in his light, no matter how dark your circumstances become. Even if you think you are dwelling in utter darkness, James is saying God's light continues to shine. The light can't be put out. God's light continues to shine upon you. But there seems to be more going on here with this expression James uses. He calls God the Father of lights, which is a very unusual expression. Why bring God's fatherhood into this, as if the lights are his children? Well, I think it raises an interesting question. What if it's not just the created lights, like sun and moon, James has in view? What if there's another layer of meaning here, a meaning found elsewhere in Scripture, but then that James is capitalizing on here? Sun, moon, and stars certainly symbolize God in his light, but we find, particularly in the old, throughout the Old Testament, they symbolize humans. Sometimes human rulers, the sun, moon, and stars were created to rule over the earth, so they're fitting pictures of earthly rulers, and that's even depicted on flags of various countries, including our own, where 50 stars represent 50 governments or 50 rulers. So there's that. But these heavenly lights especially symbolize God's people all throughout Scripture. So in Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abraham that his descendants will be like the stars of heaven. Each star will represent to Abraham one of his children, a faithful believer. Abraham's descendants will be like the stars of the sky. Those stars represent Abraham's family, the multitude of stars. In Matthew 5, Jesus calls his disciples the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world, but we reflect his light in some way into the world. Philippians 2 says we shine as stars into a dark world. We shine as lights into a dark world. Paul says it. We're lights shining into the darkness. And in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says salvation happens through God's word when he says, let there be light in our hearts. And then the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines in us, driving out the darkness in our hearts, that God's light might shine from within us. We are light. We are the lights. When James says God is the Father of lights, we are the lights He has fathered. We are the children He has begotten, that we might shine with His light, the light of our Father, that we might shine our Father's light into the world. We are sons of the light. Our Heavenly Father is the Father of lights. In fact, bringing in God as Father, and therefore us as His children, really sets up an interesting parallel with what James has said about sin in verses 14 and 15. I've already hinted at this, but again, I want to unpack this further because it's so brilliant what James does here. It's one of those deep structures that's embedded in the text. When you see it, it just makes so much sense. Throughout this section in James chapter 1, James has been contrasting sin and salvation. And it's like they run parallel even if they're running in opposite directions. James uses the same language to describe the birth of sin 
that he uses to describe our new birth, our birth through God's word, the birth of salvation. So you've got the birth of sin, sin being birth, and you've got salvation being birth. So there's this connection. Evil desires give birth to sin, which then grows up into death. Contrast that with the Father who gives birth to sons of light, who then grow to maturity and to perfection. And so we see this new birth breaks the cycle of death. Because of this new birth, light shines into the darkness. And so in verse 18, the very next verse, James goes on to describe this process of birth in more detail. So you've got the birth of sin contrasted with the birth of salvation. The birth of sin, what, what, sin, what evil desires give birth to. And then salvation, what God's goodness gives birth to. And James is telling these two stories side by side in verses 13 through 18. James is contrasting what you might call the biography of sin from its conception through our evil desires all the way to eternal death when it has matured. Okay, So from its birth to its development, its birth in our evil desires, its development and actions of sin, till it's finally matured and takes us to hell. He's contrasting that with salvation, the biography of salvation, the biography of a child of God, this new life and light conceived by the Father, birthed through His Word, which then grows until it reaches perfection, and so finally issues, obviously, in eternal life. Sin, you might say, is conceived through deceit, and then takes on a life of its own, resulting in death. Whereas salvation brings new life, which is conceived through the word of truth and results in perfection, in eternal life. You've got these two contrasting stories James is telling. The biography of sin and the biography of salvation. And it's as if James wants to say, look, which story are you in? It's like he wants us to ask, which story are you in? The sin story or the salvation story? Which is growing to perfect finality in you, death or life? Evil desires giving birth to sin, growing up to to mature evil? Or the Father giving birth to you through His Word, making you a son of light, growing up to, to maturity, to perfection? Which is it? Have you fallen for the deceit of temptation, or has the Word of truth been implanted in you? Which is it? See, your heart left to itself can only conceive and give birth to sin. But when God, the Father, in His goodness, gives you the new birth, He recreates you as a child of light through the power of His Word. And so you begin to live a new kind of life with new desires. The kind of life that James will go on to describe then in the following verses. And so at the end of verse 18, James says, we are a kind of first fruits. That could mean that these first century Jewish believers who are the first Christians are, in a sense, the first fruits of the church, and therefore they point ahead to a fuller harvest still to come when the Gentiles are harvested and brought in. That certainly is a possible meaning here. Others have suggested, because James says that they are the first fruits of his creatures or of creation, that really what James is saying is that redeemed humanity is pointing ahead to the redemption of the whole cosmos, of the whole creation. Human redemption points to cosmic redemption. A new humanity points to a new heavens and new earth, ultimately, when all things are made new at the last day. 
And so we're the first fruits, something like what Paul says in Romans 8, 18 to 25. We, humanity, we are the first fruits pointing to a full and cosmic redemption in the end. Either way, James is saying to these Christians, you belong to God, you're the first fruits. You've been harvested, there is more to come. So what does this new life look like? If this is the new life that uh, that God the Father gives to us, birthing us by His Word, what does it look like? What happens when the Father makes you a son of life? When His good and perfect gift of salvation comes down from heaven into your life? When you are born again by the Word of truth into His new creation? When you become the first fruits of all His creatures? Well, James has given us the doctrine here, given us doctrine in a very compressed form. Now he's going to give us the application. But don't think of those as two separable things. In Scripture, doctrine is always intertwined with life. Doctrine is always given for the sake of action. The goal of doctrine is never just information, it's always transformation, it's always character formation. And so James is going to show us what this new life looks like. You know, it's been said that if you find it really easy to be a Christian, you probably aren't one, at least not a faithful one, because the Christian life is not easy. And James shows us that here, as he sketches out for us in several ways what this new life looks like. So consider verse 19. So then, beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. James here really is giving an outline of coming topics that are going to be filled out in greater length later in the letter. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I mean, in a sense, that sounds pretty simple, right? You think, okay, those three things, I can do that, right? But actually, it's very hard to live this way, to live this kind of self-controlled, disciplined life. Now, what's interesting, but not surprising is that all of these instructions James gives here in verse 19, is James the, the first instructions he gives about this new life after he's described where it comes from, these instructions are actually all rooted in the Bible's wisdom literature. You go back to Proverbs, you find this is what a life of wisdom looks like. And so quick to hear, slow to speak. Echoes Proverbs 17.28, Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his lips. You know, we have the similar adage, better to be quiet and thought to fool than open your mouth and prove it. Okay, That's what Proverbs is saying. James is picking up on that. And James is going to have a whole lot more to say about the tongue later on in the letter. When we get to chapter 3, we'll see it. How our speech becomes a window onto our hearts. You know, Remember, Jesus said it's not what goes into a man's mouth that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of his mouth. There's a certain way of talking that makes you unclean. James is saying, avoid that kind of speaking. Listen before you speak. Be quick to listen, ready to listen, eager to listen. And be very slow to speak. There's a time for speaking. But choose your words carefully. James speaks of being slow to anger. Proverbs 15, 18 says, An angry man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger avoids quarrels. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. Now again, James is going to have a lot more to say about anger at different points along the way in this letter. 
But what I want you to see here is that for James, salvation has intensely practical results. Salvation is something that can be seen. There are visible, tangible, public results. Salvation expresses itself in a certain way of life. Salvation expresses itself in obedient and wise living, where we listen to God's Word before we speak. So we've heard God before we try to speak to others. Salvation expresses itself in a self-controlled spirit where we're not just flying off the handle. Sure, there's such a thing as righteous anger. But we also know how rare righteous anger is, that most of our anger is not righteous. And so the saved man, the man who's been born anew as a a son of the light, is going to exercise self-control. He's going to have control over his emotions, over his anger. He's not going to fly into fits of rage. James is giving us a working model for new creation life. New desires that come from this new birth and that result in maturity. But then actually James gives us another way of looking at it. It's not just that new desires come in, it's that old habits are driven out. And so he goes on to say in verse 21, Lay aside all filthiness and rampant wickedness. In place of those things, he says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. James says we're to lay aside filthiness. The term filthiness there uh, is actually a term that describes raw sewage. And that's how you need to see sin in your life. It's raw, untreated sewage. And you need to flush it away. That's how your evil desires are. You know, People talk all the time about how we've got to take good care of the environment and clean up the environment. And, and those can be good things to talk about in the right kind of way. But what James is saying here is you need to clean up the environment of your heart. You've let your heart be polluted by the world, by the filthiness of the world. And James is saying, turn off that stream of sewage that you're just letting into your life, turn it off, lay it aside, go a different direction, live a clean and pure life, free of sin's pollution. Cut it off, lay it aside. He also speaks of overflowing wickedness or rampant wickedness. James again says, get rid of it, put it off, put it to death, drive it out. Instead of letting evil run wild in your life, turn loose the word implanted in you. The word of truth, the word of the gospel, the word is it is read and preached faithfully. James here speaking of the implanted word, it really makes us think of Jesus' parable of the soils in Matthew 13, where the word is planted like seed in the soil of our hearts. And you can prove yourself over time to be good soil or bad soil. And what distinguishes the good soil is the word is able to take root It's able to to, to send roots down into your heart and then grow up, grow up out of your heart to bear fruit. That's what the seed implanted, the word implanted in us is to do. It's to grow and flourish in your life. Is that happening? Is the word of God implanted in your heart growing and flourishing and thriving and bearing fruit? It's not enough to just skim the surface of the word. 
You have to know the Word. You have to study it with depth. You need to go deep into the Word, even the parts of the Word that are neglected or difficult or that seem weird or that are challenging, maybe especially those parts that are challenging. So I don't have to read the Word or study it even. James says you can't just be a hearer of the Word. You have to be quick to hear the Word. But you've got to hear it in the right kind of way. You've got to hear it so that you put it into practice. It is not enough to read your Bible. Reading your Bible is great. It's not enough. It's not enough to hear a sermon. It is great to hear a sermon, but that is not enough. You have to take what you read and take what you hear and put it into practice. So you are not merely a hearer of the Word, but a doer of the Word. You've got to learn to put these things into practice. And that's really the next theme James takes up. Don't merely hear the Word, do it. Believe and obey what you hear. Put it into practice. So let's tie all this together. If you are too busy talking yourself, then you're not going to be able to hear what God is saying much less do it. So you need to listen. You need to become a good listener, a good listener especially to God, to God's Word. If you get angry, well, angry people are not good listeners either. And so if you're angry all the time, you're not going to be able to put God's Word into practice. If you are drowning in the filthiness or rampant wickedness of the world, if that's the environment you live in, that kind of polluted environment, the Word is simply not going to bear fruit in your life. It's being drowned out. By the sewage. Our culture says, listen to your heart. Listen to the word or the wisdom within. Turn within. James here says, no, don't turn within. Look outside yourself. Listen to a word that comes from outside yourself. Submit to the authority of this word. This is the word, the word of God. This is the word that gives wisdom, that gives life that will bring you to perfection. This is the word you want implanted in your heart. This is the word that gives salvation. Cling to this word. Love this word. Believe this word. Obey this word. Submit yourself to this word. This word that comes from the outside in. For as James says, When you submit yourself to this word, when you believe this word and put it into practice in this way, this word is able to save your lives. Receive it with meekness. Receive it with humility. And it will save you for all eternity. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, you know that all we can produce in ourselves is evil desires leading to sin and growing up into eternal death. But Father, you produce new life in us. You give birth to us and make us sons of the light, leading to salvation and to perfection and to maturity in righteousness and to glory. And so, Father, help us to receive your word, the implanted word, the seed of your word with meekness, that it might put down roots in our hearts and grow to bear great fruit. May we live out what we have been given. May we do the truth we have heard. May new life be given to us, this word implanted in us, this new life we have. May it bear fruit. May we continually receive your word in humility. So the pollution of our lives may be continually driven out. So rampant wickedness in our lives may be put to death. So we might live in righteousness and wisdom. Father, may you do all of these things in us, for us, 
through us, all to the saving of our souls for all eternity. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.